Well, welcome once again to a really awkward Sunday where you are in your living room watching on a device while we are here in the church foyer this week of Gospel City Church. Hey, wherever you're at, we know the Holy Spirit is there. Wherever two or three are gathered in His name, He is there. And so even though we are unable to meet within the four walls of Gospel City Church, we know that we are gathering together in literally thousands of places. Each week we hear of people that would never step inside the walls of our church, but somehow they've engaged us. If you're one of those, thanks. Thanks for window shopping. Just peering in to see what this church is all about. And uh, one of the things that you're going to discover quickly is our church is all about hearing what God has said through His Word. And so let me invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 19. We've been marching verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to continue that here in just a moment. Before we dive in, let me just give you an update on some things that are happening, not only in our church, but what's happening in our state, even locally, uh, because the question is beginning to arise. When is the church going to reopen? I think the first appropriate answer to that question is the church is never closed. Uh, we're having to be innovative. Um, we're dealing the hand that's been dealt to us. We're turning lemons into lemonade. And so let me just say this, uh, this live stream is not a substitute for the gathering. Even though we are gathering online, we look forward to the day that we can all gather together for worship. And um, as state and local officials are beginning to give us guidelines for reopening, I want to let you know that this week our staff and our elders will be putting our heads together and coming up with our best thoughts about how we can safely open the church. And let me tell you this, we're going to do that whenever we can safely gather together our at-risk community, um, our children together, which is maybe the most complicated piece of all of that, and whenever our facility will allow us to reopen. So what does all that mean as far as a timeline? Well, let me just, let me just put that on pause for a minute and let me help you to understand what has happened even during this quarantine. During this time when we have not been able to meet, do you know what God has done for us as a church? God has given us three new facilities to worship in. You know that for the past couple of years, we've been in a construction project to build a brand new worship center here at the Granger campus. And we are now weeks away from finishing that. Listen, the next time we gather as a church on the Granger campus, we will be meeting in our brand new 1100 seat worship center. When is that gonna be? Don't quite yet have a date, but somewhere around four or five weeks from now. That's the next time we're going to gather, and we're going to gather in that brand new worship center. If you are part of the Elkhart campus, you know that God has given the Elkhart campus a brand new facility to meet in. Um, they're in the Goshen area, so we're super excited about that. Your opening date may be different than the opening date in Granger. Listen for uh, leadership in the days ahead. And then, of course, we have been praying and excited about planting a church in downtown South Bend area, and God has provided a facility for that. Three facilities during the time that we can't meet in those facilities. But the next time we meet, 
Those facilities, Lord willing, will be open. Listen, thank you for your generosity and giving. All of that is the result of God opening doors and, and um, proving Himself faithful as we've proven ourselves generous. So thank you for those things. We want to make sure that we are on mission. And though the church services have been suspended, the mission has not. And our mission is simply to glorify God by making disciples. And disciples are being made. And I trust that even what's happening right now in your living room, on your device, is part of what God is doing to make you into a fully devoted worshiper of Christ who is taking his or her next step as a follower of Jesus. So, I told you last week we have begun a brand new series entitled Divine Deconstruction. Uh, that's part of what's happening on the, on the other side of the wall here is there's divine deconstruction happening in there as the wall that you're used to on the right side is being deconstructed, which will become the opening into the new worship center. The stage is being deconstructed. That's why we can't meet in there right now. So be patient even as other churches open back up um, in four or five weeks, something like that, uh, we'll be able to meet together, Lord willing. So let me ask you this question. During this pandemic, have you been tempted to wonder, could this be the end of the world? I mean, I read about these plagues in the Bible and I read the apocalyptic literature about how God sends judgment. And it sure does seem like he's He's doing some stuff, and I wonder if this could be the end. I wonder if Jesus is coming back. All in favor of Jesus coming back, say amen. Uh, all in favor of that happening before I finish this message, say amen. I'm right there with you. But you know, as we look in the scripture for the answer to the question, when is Jesus coming back, we don't ever find an answer. That's not the right question. The right question is not, when is Jesus coming back? The right question is this, what should I do until he returns? Wrong question, when is Jesus going to return? Right question, what am I supposed to be doing until he returns? And that is the subject of the text we're about to read here in Luke chapter 19. Jesus has to deconstruct some of our irresponsibility as we just sit around waiting for Jesus to do whatever Jesus is going to do. Jesus didn't want us to think like that. Jesus didn't want us to think like, you know, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing I can do. I'm not responsible for this mess. Jesus, you just come back and do it. Well, he instructs his servants that we are to take responsibility in between the time that he ascended to his throne in heaven and the time when he will return. And I want you to see that here from the scripture. Let's begin reading in Luke chapter 19. I'll give you the first point of the message. It's this, take inventory and ask this question. What have you been given? Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, and of course, those are the things related to Zacchaeus in the previous passage where Jesus said he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable, a story, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You have to understand, Jesus at this time is in Jericho, just about 35 miles south of 
Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem for the final time. It's where he's going to die on a cross, be placed in a tomb, raised on the third day. And those that had been listening to his teaching were anticipating this being the climactic moment of human history where Jesus would come as the Messiah to declare he is king of Israel, king of the world, kick out the oppressive Romans who were uh, putting pressure on the, the Jews as the nation of Israel. They were looking for a political Messiah to come and make their lives easier and to take the throne. Why were they thinking this way? They were thinking that way because they knew their Bibles. If you've ever taken time to read the first three quarters of your Bible, you'll discover there are books in there written by men who are identified as prophets. And those prophets gave the forecast for what the Messiah's ministry would be. He would come as a servant and ultimately... He would take his place as king of the world on a throne unrivaled by enemies to rule and to reign forever. And so even though there's doom and gloom as you ride the roller coaster of the ups and the downs of the Israel nation, that's what the first three quarters of your Bible is all about. It ultimately points us, almost all of those prophets at the end of their books point to a coming day when there will be a king who will come and reign unrivaled over all creation. And of course, we know that's Jesus. And so when Jesus came the first time, these followers of Jesus are looking for him to do that ultimate climactic victory. But they're simply thinking about it in terms of a political victory to overcome the oppression of the Romans. And Jesus wants them to know, that's not all I'm here for. And so he continues, look in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman, here's the story, made up story, mythical story. Jesus is telling a parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Do you see the movement? There's a king who came into a country. He left that country and then he returned. And of course, this is talking about Jesus leaving his throne in heaven, coming to earth. He only was here for 33 years on the planet, and then he ascended to his father back into heaven. You and I live in the time in between Jesus' first coming and his return at his second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God is here. So when Jesus came, the kingdom of God came with it. The rule and the reign, the authoritative voice and rule and control of Jesus over all things. He inaugurated that 2,000 years ago when he came. But he will not consummate his, king, his kingdom until he returns the second time. You and I live in the space in between. And Jesus wants to teach us what we're to do until he returns through this story. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 13 what he says. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now, a mina was a currency, the way that we would think about dollars. And a mina in that currency was about three months wages. It was a very large amount of money. So 
I don't know, let's just pick a figure. If you make $5,000 a month and you multiply that by three, you've got about $15,000 here. Can you imagine the wad of cash $15,000 would look like to you? And Jesus is telling the story. Imagine 10 servants coming and God distributes to them $15,000 each. And then he continues, he says, and he said to, him, said to them, engage in business until I come. Now the business that he's speaking of symbolically in the story is not your business, not, not your business that you go to work and make a profit for. He's talking about the business God is in. God is engaged in the business of this broken world. And we already know what his business is. It was in the previous story when he said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the business that God is in. And what Jesus is telling us is he wants you to be engaged in his business and to use what God has given us to do business that God is interested in. So he continues in verse 14, it says, But his, his citizens hated him, and, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. You can see the kingdom language, reigning. We don't want this man to be our king. And that's true for every one of us. There is something in the human heart, certainly in my heart, that wants King Trent to reign over all things. I, I love it when people come and, and bow down to me, and I love it when people come and surrender to me, and I love it when people praise me the way they would a king. And that's true of you as well. There's something in us that doesn't want any other king to sit on the throne in our hearts. And he identifies these people as his citizens. Later on, we're going to find out he identifies them as his enemies. And so he continues in verse 15. It says, uh, when he returned, remember the, the, the king has gone off to a far country. He's left this pile of money for his servants, tells them to do business. And it says, when he returns, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Mark it down. Every individual one day will be called to give an account of what we have done with that which God has given to us. And so we need to understand the accountability, the responsibility to do with God's stuff what he would do with his stuff if he were here physically. That's the responsibility that we have been entrusted with. Do you understand? Jesus has given you massive responsibility to engage in his business, to do with his stuff what he would do with his stuff if he was physically here. And we're to do that until he returns, and we don't know when that's going to be. We should live today engaged in God's business as if tomorrow he's coming to call us to give an account for it. So this is the question I would ask you. What have you been given? 
Let's just take inventory right now and let me give you five categories to think through, maybe even to make a list as God brings things to mind. First of all, when he talks about giving us a gift, the first thing that he's given us is life itself. It's the very breath that we breathe. Do this with me right now. Everybody breathe in a breath and blow it out. Do you realize the breath that you just inhaled is a gift from God more significant than a pile of minas or dollar bills? That was a gift. And the only thing God would need to do for you not to be able to breathe in the next breath is simply not give it. Every breath is a gift. Every heartbeat is a gift. Every second that you are alive is a gift. And do you know what God wants you to do with that breath and that heartbeat and that second? He wants you to engage in His business. Now, of course, there's a lot of things that we do. We have responsibilities, but the most important responsibility we have is the responsibility to use our lives for the purpose which God intended it, to reflect His glory. And so the way that I live, the way that I move, the way that I talk, the way that I think is either going to be something that's going to demonstrate I'm responsible for that breath in a way that gives glory to God, or it's going to be simply be consumed on me. So are you using your life responsibly? Are you taking responsibility for that which you have been given? How about this second category, your family? Um, God could have chosen to get us on planet Earth any way He wanted to. For all of us, you have a mother you have a father, you've been placed in a family, and some of you are in step families, and, and some of you may not have chosen the mother or the father that God used to get you on the planet, but we're in that family unit. And some of us are parents. We have children for which we are responsible. Um, for some of us, uh, we have aunts and uncles, and, and we have this influence in our family. Uh, we need to take responsibility for loving them, for creating a sense of family. Some of you have friends and, 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 and co-workers for which you feel like your family. And you need to take responsibility for being the best possible friend and family member in that home, in that unit. How about this third category? Influence. All of us have a mind. All of us have a circle of influence. Places that you go. Teams that you play on workplaces that you go to. Um, all of us have a voice to be able to influence what happens in that environment. If you never speak up, if you never speak truth into places maybe that are filled with lies, if you are never light in the midst of darkness, you're not taking responsibility. Take responsibility for that environment that God has put you into. Here's another category, wealth. If you've ever heard this parable before, it's probably been a time when some preacher like me has talked to you about how you're spending your money, how you're saving your money, and of course, how you're giving your money. Well, that may or may not be the main point of this passage, but it's certainly something that Jesus wasn't shy to talk about. And he talked about how he is the one that gives us the power to make wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says, don't think that it's somehow your ingenuity and your brain. It is 
the Lord your God who gives you the power to make wealth. And every dime is a gift. And God wants all of it invested in His business. And so how we spend, how we save, how we, how we give should be a vital part of taking responsibility. Here's a final category. It's the revelation of God Himself. It's God's self-disclosure of Himself. It's, it's His written Word that we have in front of us. It's His Holy Spirit that illuminates that Word. Every word that you've ever read in Scripture is a gift of God to reveal to you His will and His ways. Every sermon you've ever heard preached, every time somebody's ever prayed for you, every opportunity you've ever had to come to church or view biblical content online, we have a responsibility every time we hear it to respond in faith and repentance. So take inventory. And you know, the first response from our heart ought to be just gratefulness to God. Thank you, God, for my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the influence that you've given me. Thank you for every dime. And thank you for your word. Take inventory and be grateful. Here's the second point, And this is the final point. Take responsibility and ask this question. What are you doing with what you have been given. So the second point, take responsibility. What are you doing with what you have been given? The story continues here and he tells um, a less flattering illustration. He says this, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants uh, uh, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first one came saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Now, I want you to notice something. He didn't say, my mina has made 10 minas more. Good servants understand that it all belongs to God. Even though he's given it to us, it's still his. So your mina has made 10 more, verse 17. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Underline that, faithful in a very little thing. You shall have authority over 10 cities. Verse 18, and the second came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and, uh, and you are to be over five cities. And so do you understand what's happening here? Jesus is teaching us a principle. Faithful responsibility of God's stuff today will be rewarded with proportionate degrees of responsibility in the future. Now, if your idea of heaven is lazily sitting on a cloud playing a harp for the rest of eternity, you do not understand the kingdom of heaven. We don't have all the details, but it's going to be a place where God's servants have massive responsibility. We just read the one who made 10 minas is going to have responsibility over 10 cities. The one who made five is going to have a, a proportionate amount of responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. And he says to him, well done, good servant. You've been faithful in a very little thing. Now, if you're like me, you want God to give you big stuff. You want big influence. You want big responsibility. And I think those are aspirations that are God-given. 
But I want you to notice what Jesus says about his servants. He says, those who are faithful in the little responsibilities will be given more responsibility. And you know what? This is what I've discovered. Things that have seemed like very little responsibilities to me have actually turned out to be great big tests to see if I can handle and be entrusted with great big responsibility. Are you doing some very little things right now for which you feel unappreciated, unthanked, unnoticed? Are you raising kids and just faithfully making sure they get fed and cleaned and survive the day? Are you faithfully just trying to live within your means on the budget, not spending more than you make? Are you faithfully giving maybe what you think might be just a little, but putting God first in your finances? Do you understand it's that kind of faithfulness in little things that God is looking for to entrust more responsibility and more things to? It's what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. Be faithful in the little things. My, uh, my son, Zach, I'm so proud of him. Yesterday was a, a big day in his life. He's 23 years old. Yesterday, we celebrated his college graduation. And um, five years, two degrees, both a, master's, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. He's studying to be a pastor. Couldn't be more proud that my son's pursuing ministry. And, and we were so proud of him. He's getting married uh, this summer. He had a job offer in Indianapolis at one of the greatest churches in our state. And because of the pandemic, job offer's been rescinded. Weddies, the wedding's going to turn into a small backyard gathering with immediate family. And things that seemed like really big responsibility have turned into very little things. It kind of reminds me of the 23-year-old version of me. Um, 23 years old, I was a seminary graduate. I had just received my master's degree in religion, and I was excited about ministry. I was excited about launching out, getting into a church ministry where I could make disciples. And I remember for about a year from the time that I graduated until the time that I finally was offered a ministry position was about a year. And during that year, I just needed to make some money. I just needed to survive. And so I basically spent between 10 o'clock at night until about four o'clock in the morning, cleaning office buildings, scrubbing toilets, emptying trash, vacuuming up everybody else's mess. And there were so many times late in the night, I'm thinking, God, really, really, this is, this is the responsibility you're entrusting me with? Is, do you think I might be, I could handle something more than scrubbing a toilet? And I am absolutely convinced that I would never have been, been entrusted with some of the responsibilities I have now without that season of trying to be faithful in very little things. A couple of weeks ago, 
Um, here at the church, of course, we're under this construction project and there's wonderful landscaping going on all around us. And when I say wonderful landscaping, it, that means it's a big muddy mess is what it is. And uh, there was a Saturday morning where it was time to plant some trees around the boundaries of our property here. And, and our small group had decided, hey, we're going to be the ones to come up, show up. We're going to help get those trees planted. And um, so we showed up Saturday morning. It's raining sideways. It's 40 degrees. And it is a mess. And for the next three hours, we did our best to dig holes and plant trees and mulch and cut wire and, and put them in the right way while it was just, we were just caked in mud. We finished that up. We actually had a great time, went home, got warm. I got a text from James Klein, who is our facilities director here. And he just said, hey man, thanks uh, for coming out. You didn't have to do that, but really just, just thanks. You're, you, you know, you're the pastor. You don't have to come out and dig in the mud. And I was like, hey, I was just doing my job. And then I reminded him of the people that were surrounding us that day. And I think there's a picture here you can see on the screen. But uh, that picture includes one of the most successful business owners in our community. That picture includes a, uh, um, a Marine combat veteran who's now director of veterans and military affairs at Notre Dame University. That picture includes another man who's a colonel in the Army who's the recipient of a very prominent position to write and study on strategic military leadership at Notre Dame. In that picture is a tennis champion. In that picture is a straight-A student. In that picture, actually, the person that took the picture is vice president at Notre Dame. And we were all just caked in mud, down on our hands and knees, just doing some little things. And you know what? I believe that's what's qualified all of those men to be entrusted with great responsibility because a heart that understands. We're just trying to be faithful with that which God has given us. I want to invite you, if you want to be entrusted with massive responsibility, be faithful in the little things. Let's go back to those five categories. We said take responsibility. Are you taking responsibility for your life and the lives of others? Are you using your time to invest in anybody but yourself? To teach someone else how to live a life that pleases God and can bless others? How about your family? I, I want to encourage you in a culture that has basically just set aside the whole concept of marriage in favor of just kind of pretending to be married and cohabitating. Here's, here's one of the ways that you can be faithful in little things is to pursue and value the sanctity of marriage. And if you have the opportunity to raise kids, we're reading the first couple of pages of our Bibles, that we are to be fruitful and multiply, which goes right in line with this passage. A guy that had one turned 10. I don't know if that means you need to have 10 kids, but, but embracing the responsibility of being a mom and a dad, not just to, to create children, but to raise them and to teach them to have a heart for Jesus and the gospel. What are you doing with your influence? God has strategically placed us where we are, when we are. It's not just that we have life. It's that our lives have been planted in this place at this time for this moment of influence. And so our church, we believe, is, is a beacon to this community. We want to extend the gospel into every corner of our community to be the influence. And it takes individuals like you to do that. Thirdly, your wealth. Um, this, 
really is a theme throughout all of Jesus' teaching is that we're to be responsible with that which God has given. It all belongs to God. And so the first responsibility is to take my hands off God's stuff and say, God, it all belongs to you. What, what do you want me to do with it? I'm, you've given it to me because there's some, some bills that need to be paid and there, there's some responsibilities that I have. But I also need to save an appropriate amount for a season so that I'm responsible even for a time when I don't have an income. But then there's a huge opportunity here to invest in the kingdom of God. And I know some of you right now are struggling with finances in this season of uncertainty. Some of you have lost your jobs. And most of us have either or are receiving some money. The government's returning some of our tax money to us. And if you're like me, there's money that just landed in my bank account on April 15th. Crazy. And, and I, I have asked the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? This doesn't belong to me. This is, this is not a windfall. Maybe some of it needs to be saved. Some of it may need to be spent. Some of it could be given. Maybe I could give now in a way that I wanted to give before I had this. Some of you need to take all of that and go buy groceries. And that's the most faithful thing that you can do. Some of you need to take it because your income hasn't dropped and you got this bonus. You need to go give it to somebody else who doesn't have an income. And some of you may need to pray about giving in a way that invest in the kingdom of God. And you've seen all the different things that we're trying to do here to be the church God wants us to be. Here's the last thing. Remember that fifth thing is revelation. What are you doing with the words that God has spoken to you? What are you doing with the Holy Spirit's prompting about sin and salvation? Are you responding to that daily with faith and repentance? Look here at verse 20. It says, Then another came. So there was these three servants. One made ten, one made five, and then we got this third guy. Notice what happens. Then another came saying, Lord. It's interesting that he called him Lord. Really? Let's find out if he really treated him like he was Lord. Here is your mina, which I kept... Just underline that word. That's a contrast from the other two guys. I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Underline the word severe. This guy who's irresponsible thinks Jesus is severe. Irresponsible people think God is severe. Responsible people think God is gracious. It says, you take what you did not possess and reap what you did not sow. So he accuses him, he blames him for a lack of character. The reality is the problem is not a lack of Jesus' character. The problem is a lack of this guy's character. Notice in verse, um, in verse 22, he said, Jesus said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. First two guys, good servant. Well done. Third guy, wicked servant. Now, do you see anything that you would put in the category of wicked that this guy's done? What did the guy do? Answer? Nothing. Jesus puts nothingness in the wicked category. God is not going to congratulate you for what you did not do. Doing nothing is considered wicked in the kingdom of God. 
He says, you wicked servant, if you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest at least. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it, because that's what God does, God gives. Give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has will be given more, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The excuse the guy offers is, I was afraid of you. That is not the reason the guy kept and hid what had been given. It's not because he was afraid of the king. It was because he was afraid of failure. It was because he was afraid of risk. He was afraid of feeling unsafe. Do you know that you can value your safety so much it, it can become dangerous to your soul? It could actually be considered wicked for you simply to live safe? Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor in Nazi Germany. Incredible courage. This is what he said. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make the wrong decisions out of faith and love. John Piper commenting on that says, risk avoidance may be more sinful, more unloving than taking the risk in faith and love and making the wrong decision. Doing nothing needs forgiveness as much as doing the best you can and erring. Risk requires courage. Being a faithful servant of Jesus requires courage. Giving and taking responsibility and investing in the kingdom requires courage. And courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in the face of fear. This guy calls the king severe. And that's what lazy, irresponsible people call people who make demands of them to take responsibility. What excuses have you used for irresponsibility? I thought of a few, some that I've used. I've thought, you know, I'm not sure I have anything to work with here. I, I can't do anything because I don't have anything. Well, we just kind of blew apart that mist. You, you have a life, you have breath, you have strength, you have time, and God's going to hold us responsible for all of it. God has entrusted to us things that we all have. You have an influence, you have voice, you have intellect, and God wants all of it engaged in His business. I've used the excuse before, I can't do as much compared to others. I mean, I know some really talented people. I know some really courageous leaders, and they're just so much more talented. They're so much smarter than I am. And yet in the story, the guy that only was able to produce five didn't compare himself with the guy that had ten. The guy that produced 10 didn't diminish the guy that could only produce five. They were just multipliers. They did what they could with that which they had. Don't use the excuse, I can't do as much as others. Here's another one. What, what I can do won't make a difference. 
I mean, it's just really bad out there and I can't do anything, so I'm not gonna do anything. Uh, you may say, I, I can't do everything, so I'm just gonna do nothing. No, everybody can do something. Or you may say, I'm afraid of failing. That's rooted in pride. That's one of my besetting sins. Is I don't want to look like a failure in front of you, in front of my family. So if I don't do anything, I won't fail anything. And Jesus says, that's not an option. You, you can't feel fa failure. Or here's another one. My, my irresponsibility doesn't affect anybody but me. So get off my case. It's not true. We are living in a culture right now that is actually breeding irresponsibility. We're thinking everybody else owes me. I'm entitled. And the truth is, your irresponsibility eventually becomes somebody's responsibility. Usually those that love you the most. Your irresponsibility affects a lot of people, mostly you. The story ends with a really troubling verse. Let me just read it to you here, verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, do you remember the guys back up at the beginning of the story that didn't want Jesus to reign over them? He comes back to them at the end. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Troubling. Notice the difference between the way that Jesus treats his enemies and the way he treats his servants. The truth of the matter is those are the only two categories. I'm born into this world rivaling the kingship of Jesus. I, I have, by my own sinful, rebellious heart, declared myself to be king. I don't want anybody reigning over king me. And if that posture never changes, if I never bow before King Jesus in submission and worship, receiving Him as King of me, my ultimate destiny is I will be eternally slaughtered in the presence of King Jesus. And yet, this is an opportunity to take responsibility for your sin. It's an opportunity to take responsibility for your pride, stubborn, arrogant attitude that has challenged the kingship, the authority of Jesus. And to say, Jesus, in every way, in every moment, I want you reigning over me. All that I have is yours. I open my hands. I want my life, my breath, my time, my influence, my voice, my family, my wealth, all engaged in your business as King Jesus. If you've never fully and finally bowed to King Jesus, you can do that right now. You can open your heart and say, Lord, I, I've, I've been the one that's been hoarding and hiding and wanting to live a safe life. And right now, I surrender it all to you. Open my hands. Show me how I can engage in your business. I've been way too concerned with mine. I repent. 
I trust you as my king. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you that you are kind and gracious to those over whom you reign. And yet we know the whole Bible is written that one day you will remove all rivals. You'll declare victory over all enemies. And God, I pray for every person that's listening right now that they would not be in the number of your enemies. That your spirit right now would break down defenses. That they would bow to you, your authority, your rule, your reign over every moment, over everything in their lives. Thank you for breaking through my walls. Continue to break down my defenses, my tendency to want to put myself on that throne again. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you that you and you alone can save. By your grace, you've done that. Do it again, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.